Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Revolution 250 podcast. I'm Bob Allison. I chair the Rev 250 Advisory Group. We are a collaboration among about 70 organizations in Massachusetts looking at ways to commemorate the beginnings of American independence. And our guest today is Louis P. Major. And Lou Major is the Board of Governors Distinguished Professor of American Studies and, His and History at Rutgers University and author of uh, more books than I can count, books that actually span the uh, foundation of the Republic. He edited a great edition of Benjamin Franklin's autobiography and books that include Autumn Glory about the First World Series, a um, couple of books about Abraham Lincoln, a book about the year 1831, a book about Bruce Springsteen, a book about photography and Boston's busting crisis. I mean, it's a tremendous span of books that you've written. Actually, I could spend the whole half hour just talking about <laughs> your books, but you're, you're talking about a book that you're in the process of writing. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Bob. Thanks for having me. I mean, this has just been fantastic what you've been doing for Revolution 250. And I'm glad that I'm back working in the 18th century for, for the first time in a long time. Yes. Uh, yeah. I'm, I'm in the middle of just about finishing up a book and, and what ties all of those books together in some ways, I've often been asked this because I have so many different interests, mm -hmm. is my approach to writing history is sort of the world in the grain of sand. I mean, I like mm -hmm. to take a moment, an instant, a text, and unpack it. So whether it's a year, 1831, or a speech, a book about Lincoln's last speech, or a record album, uh, Bruce Springsteen's mm -hmm. Born to Run, or a photograph, the famous a photograph of the Song of Old Glory, that sort of ties things uh, together. The only exception was this concise history of the mm -hmm. United States that I wrote. So this brings me back... To some of our dreams, yeah. Yeah, exactly, um, to that. And and what I'm writing about is a, uh, a, a brief, but I think revealing trip, road trip, that Jefferson and Madison took together uh, in between May and June of 1791. And uh, I'm just having a great time sort of thinking about these two friends uh, and, and collaborators out on the road together, uh, leaving from New York and going up through New York uh, into Connecticut. Uh, they made their way to Vermont for the first time. Vermont was recently uh, had become a state and they were interested in, in visiting in Vermont. And they came back down through Massachusetts crossed over into Long Island and back into New York. Uh, they covered over 900 miles um, in mm. between uh, May 21st and June 16th. They, they averaged something like 30 miles a day. So it's just... How do they, uh, yeah. How do they travel? Uh, uh, they sent ahead a, a phaeton. There's a great word, good vocabulary, yeah. P-H-A-E-T-O-N, uh, a good 18th century word, Jefferson's <laughs> carriage. Uh, and they had horses um, that they brought along. Madison brought his horse along. Mm -hmm. uh, James Hemings uh, mm -hmm. accompanied Jefferson. Uh, there's no other record of him anywhere in the trip except mm -hmm. a note in Jefferson's memorandum book that he sent Hemings ahead with the horses on the trip up to Poughkeepsie. Uh, and then we have a puzzle. Uh, mm -hmm. Was Madison accompanied by an enslaved person or a servant, or was he not? And mm -hmm. it's fascinating. I mean, the, the, the uncertainties of history, of course, mm -hmm. are, are always compelling. There yes. are several secondary sources 
that say Madison was accompanied by a servant or a slave named Matthew. I cannot find any reference mm -hmm. anywhere in the primary sources to this having been the mm -hmm. case. So where did Irving Brandt come up with this in 1950? Yeah. Um, yeah. And, then, and then we apply a certain amount of logic. You know, uh, Madison was accompanied by a slave when he went to Princeton as an undergraduate. He was accompanied by an enslaved person, Billy, when he went to the Confederation Congress. What are the odds that he would go on this trip with Jefferson? Yeah. Not accompanied by one. Right. So it yeah. raises these really interesting questions for us as historians in mm -hmm. terms of examining the historical record. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you raise a question about how do you write about something for which there is very little documentation? I mean, they aren't keeping travel journals. They're not writing letters saying, here we are in Vermont, but you're. Well, the, 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 yeah. I mean, fortunately, there's some stuff. I mean, there's, there's just enough. Um, so it's really interesting. Uh, Jefferson kept a journal for part of the trip. Mm -hmm. um, Madison kept a journal for part of the trip. So we do have some journal entries mm -hmm. that were taken during the trip. Uh, Jefferson, being Jefferson, uh, kept a list of all the inns and taverns they stayed at, and he wow. ranked them based on how good they were, <laughs> which, wow. is, which is funny. Like, and of course... Like a Yelp review. Well, yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> um, and then finally, one of the purposes of the trip, and this is also a debate Within the historiography, uh, those who've noted the trip, I, I should say that while I think the trip is important, it receives a couple of paragraphs, yeah. understandably, in, in any biographies or other works of Jefferson and Madison. Mm -hmm. um, but, but to the extent that there was a purpose to the trip, one of the purposes, self-avowed purposes, was to investigate the Hessian fly. Uh, the Hessian fly, of course, was an insect that destroyed wheat crops in post-revolutionary America. Uh, the name itself is uh, something that was given to the fly because of the belief that it was brought by Hessian soldiers right. in the beds uh, during the revolution. Uh, it turns out that's not the case. But, um, but prior to going on the trip, Jefferson uh, at the American Philosophical Society, they had a meeting in mm -hmm. which they created a set of queries. And part of what he did on this trip was everywhere he went, he asked people about the Hessian fly, hmm. and, uh, was for a while obsessed with trying to understand its its advance yeah. uh, and, mm -hmm. and what might possibly be done about it. Hmm. Interesting. Interesting. And then they also were interested in, I mean, both were interested in botany as well as in Native American languages and linguistics. I mean, they have a wide range of interests that they have. Yeah, exactly. And see, and, and that's the window in the grain of sand part of this. So what I do is in, I, I, I can't write a story of them sort of day by day. They did this and they did this and yeah, they did yeah. this. And that would be boring anyhow. <clears throat> so I actually take these four moments. And you're absolutely right, Bob. The, the moments illustrate the breadth of their interests, of botany, horticulture, linguistics, uh, you, you name it. They were fascinated by it. So the Hessian fly is, is one element. Uh, they become uh, Jefferson in particular with the sugar maple tree. Now, yeah. it turns out there's an entire movement at this moment to try and replace imported um, cane sugar with the sugar maple tree. Really? Uh, to for, for a variety of different reasons, not the least of which is a certain anti-slavery element of it. I mean, Benjamin right. Rush is one of the founders of a society promote mm -hmm. sugar maple thinking that we would become less reliant on cane sugar coming wow. from the uh, 
from from the West Indies or or, mm-hmm. or from the uh, from British colonies, yeah. uh, as well as to encourage domestic production. So when they're in Vermont, both Madison and Jefferson go on and on and on about these sugar maple trees. Mm-hmm. And then let's not forget that among other things, they're farmers, uh, right. and they're interested in agriculture and. Jefferson in particular, they visit a famous nursery out on Long Island, Prince's Nursery. Uh, Jefferson buys every single sugar maple that they have to sell. They get shipped to Monticello. And you can read this correspondence where it's driving him absolutely crazy. He's trying again and again and again to plant these sugar maple orchards, and he can't understand why it won't take. So, So. the trip to Vermont, I mean, so there's this moment, you know, I may have a couple of lines in his diary, in his journal about the sugar mm-hmm. maple, and then I could use it to sort of yes. unpack it into this whole story of the attempt to sort of move away from imported right. sugar to domestic production through the sugar maple tree. That's fascinating. It's fascinating. And also, they're both uh, Madison is planting wheat, and so the Hessian fly is a threat to wheat. And he also sees wheat as a way to wean us from a dependence on enslaved labor. Exactly. And it's part of that transition from tobacco to wheat that's taking right. place in, in Virginia, yeah. anyhow, and in the Piedmont. Yeah. And then let me say this is not just Jefferson and Madison. I mean, Washington, their, their correspondence oh, yeah. is filled with oh, yeah. uh, concern and anxiety over the advance of the Hessian flag. Yeah. <laughs> Jefferson, at one point, has somebody send him insects that he then studies wow. under the microscope. Wow. And he reports on the various parts of the Hessian fly. So, you know, these are the kinds of topics that, I mean, rightly so, you know, we tend to focus on the political uh, Mm -hmm. and what they're doing at this moment with respect to that. But I think we need to try and have complete multidimensional pictures of these figures. And only by doing that do we really see them in all that complexity and the ways in which the political and these other elements of their ongoing intellectual interests that have all kinds of ramifications help us to understand them um, sort of more fully as, as, as complete and fascinating human beings uh, and also as lifelong friends. So right. I should say, Bob, that, that a, a huge focus of the book is about their friendship, right. uh, a, a, a friendship that is um, legendary. I mean, it lasted right. 50 years, yeah. probably the most, uh, Gordon Wood has made this point and others have made this point, the most important, political collaboration, political friendship in American history. And and this journey together, they were already friends before 1791, mm-hmm. obviously. But um, even Madison will write about this trip 30 years oh, yeah. later yeah. in a letter and say that it made them both immediate companions. It's amazing. So it, it's, well, yeah. it, it's a trip that... I think is critical to understanding their relationship and their lifelong friendship because they both come back to it again uh, at the end of yeah. their lives. Right, right. We're talking with Lou Major, Louis P. Major, Board of Governors, a distinguished professor of American studies and history at Rutgers University, and actually an author of a forthcoming book on Jefferson and Madison. In your preface, you have this wonderful quote from John Quincy Adams, which I will read if you don't have it handy. It's given on the 50th anniversary of Washington's inauguration. And at John Quincy Adams said, the mutual influence of these two mighty minds upon each other is a phenomenon like the invisible and mysterious movements of the magnet in the physical world, and in which the sagacity of the future historian may discover the solution 
of much of our national history not otherwise easily accountable. That's <laughs> yeah. a phenomenon. It's a, it's amazing, and and as I as I say in the preface, my book does not seek to uh, solve the problems of national history, but it does provide a window onto this friendship and a window onto what interested them and and onto these times. Uh, you know, you mentioned earlier, um, and I just want to come back to it: um, Native Americans yes. and Jefferson's fascination with um, with vocabulary, with language. So as part of the trip. They end up on Long Island, and he understands that there's a, a reservation of Unkachung Indians on Long Island, and he stops by, and he pulls out an envelope from his pocket. This is a letter that someone had written him, and he was always interested in Indian vocabulary. This is one of the, yeah. uh, one yeah. of the many <laughs> amazing Jefferson yeah. projects. And he writes down on this envelope a series of words and he's an anthropologist. I mean, he's doing yeah, yeah, work. Yeah. And, and he literally writes down the Unkachag uh, uh, native words for those. And he devoted, th this is the only um, list that he personally compiled, but mm -hmm. then down through Lewis and Clark expedition, right. he's collecting and gathering Indian vocabularies under the belief that he wants to somehow find the key to the origins of, um, of, right. of Native American life and where, where did it begin under this philosophy that the longer time passes, the more diversity of language you have. Uh, it, it's an amazing story in of itself that hasn't been told uh, enough. Um, he, he's heartbroken because at one point when he leaves uh, the presidency and sends his trunks to Monticello, one of the trunks mm -hmm. with Indian vocabularies is lost. Yeah. Um, or is stolen. Uh, some have survived, including that original envelope, which is in the American wow. Philosophical Society holdings. And wow. um, I would encourage listeners to, to go online and, and, and take a look at it because it's really amazing. But again, it's one of those moments on the trip that then allows me to write at length about this whole idea of vocabulary and collecting Indian vocabularies and what can we learn by comparing mm -hmm. native languages. It's amazing. It's amazing the variety of interests that they have aside from politics. And we'll, we'll, we'll get back to politics possibly at some sure. point. Uh, but also they encounter a free black farmer in, yes. on their trip. Yes, yes. In the same way that Jefferson's interaction with the Unkachog allows for a chapter on Jefferson and Native Americans, uh, Madison's entry on this free black farmer is absolutely, absolutely fascinating. Um, I actually have, um, I have it here. Um, so okay. let me just, let me just read it. Um, sure. because to do justice to it, uh, he says at Fort George are a few families concerned in the litter trade and ferriage through the lake on the East side, a house is no house is seen except one owned and inhabited by a free Negro. He possesses a good farm of about 150 acres, which he cultivates with six white hirelings, for which he is said to have paid two and a half dollars per acre, and by his industry and good management, turns to good account. He is intelligent, reads, writes, understands accounts, is dexterous in his affairs. During the late war, he was employed in the commissary department. He has no wife and is said is disinclined to marriage, nor any women on his farm. It goes on 
for yeah. a few more lines. It's it's the longest entry we have from Madison mm -hmm. in his journal. Mm -hmm. He never names this person mm -hmm. who we know um, is, is someone by the name of Prince Taylor, a uh, mm -hmm. fascinating figure who um, was from Worcester County, Massachusetts. Uh, his father had been a slave. Uh, we know that Taylor served on the Brig Diligent in 1779 before being discharged in 1781. Uh, he accepted a bounty to enlist in the Continental Army. And we have enough details about his life to both tell the story of Prince Taylor mm -hmm. and also, though, to use the ways in which Madison wrote about this free black farmer yeah. to contemplate the big issue. Uh, and this oh, is yeah. the issue that has gotten attention, of course, uh, Madison sure. and Jefferson on issues of race and slavery. So it's it's right. it's a pretty fascinating moment. Yeah, it really is. And here's Prince Taylor has these six white hirelings on his farm. And exactly. And, and, yeah. And, uh, yeah. And his success, his success is remarkable. I mean, and you know that Madison doesn't use his name despite writing so much about him. And of course, Madison yeah. and Jefferson's complicated, complicated oh, right, relationship right. with race and slavery, uh, where, you know, intellectually they knew it was wrong. It was an evil. It was a blood on yeah, society. Yeah, yeah. Each had different kinds of racial prejudices that in different ways they could never overcome. Uh, neither, of course, freed their slaves uh, except right. Jefferson freed the slaves, those enslaved persons we fathered with Sally Hemings. Uh, it's it's an important story. And, and I think right. Madison's encounter with Prince Taylor adds a dimension to it that um, that isn't usually included when we're talking about Madison and Jefferson on the questions of race and slavery. And then add to that, that we know James Hemings is there. So what did James right. Hemings think about this? Yeah. yeah. And, yeah. and possibly Madison um, had a servant with yeah. him as well. Yeah. It does remind us too, that it's this personal element that they are actually there seeing this person and seeing these native people, that it's not an abstract question. That's right. Because here you have a real person they're talking to and hearing the story or knowing the story. And then it's important enough that Madison makes the longest entry in his journal about this yeah. guy. Yeah. That's a great point, Bob, because, yeah, this isn't book learning, right? This isn't yeah. reading Buffon and trying to sort of yeah. counteract yeah. Buffon's theories of degeneracy in the new world. Right. This is yeah. experiential. And, yeah. and how experience forces them yeah. to think through things. Uh, yeah. And confront things that perhaps they wouldn't just confront by um, by thinking abstractly yeah. about it. Yeah, I like that point. Yeah, and they're going through this area. I mean, they're both Virginians, and they've been Jefferson, of course, has been to Europe, but and Madison, this is as furthest north he goes. And so, what is and to an area, New England, an area that had not, you know, there's going to be a political difference between New England and Virginia coming. Vermont at the time is a kind of a Republican bastion. Uh, so I'm just wondering what the experience of these New Englanders is for them. Okay, so so two points, um, and we can come back to whichever one you like, but you mentioned the travel part, and okay. I think that that's important. I actually open with a section called Travelers. Uh, hmm. What does it mean to travel? What does travel mean for Jefferson compared to Madison? Uh, it turns out that this is the last 
extended journey either one will take for the rest of their lives. Wow. Uh, Jefferson, of course, loved to travel, right? In, yeah. in England, yeah. he, he, he gambled through gardens with John Adams and, of course, yeah. Yeah. famous journeys uh, through France. Uh, other you say gamble, G-A-M-B-O-L. That's correct, gambled, yeah. right. <laughs> uh, the, uh, um, the founding fathers, many of them, of course, um, traveled, loved to travel. Yeah. Franklin crossed the Atlantic oh, more yeah. than, than any of them. Um, uh, Washington didn't travel much, of course. Uh, in fact, the only time he ever traveled across the seas is when he went to Barbados. Uh, But he is simultaneously at this moment touring the United States. Uh, One of the things he did uh, as president famously was he decided it was important for him to visit all 13 states. So he did a northern tour and a southern tour and his southern tour overlaps with Madison and Jefferson's tour. The thing about Madison, um, Madison was not a good traveler. Uh, He hated to travel. He never went to Europe. And, and, And this comes back to um, why are they taking this trip? You know, I mentioned the Hessian fly, but mm-hmm. there are multiple reasons for it. And, and I promise, Bob, I'm going to wind back to your question about the No, this is good. <laughs> All right, I haven't forgotten that. Uh, but why are they taking this trip? One of the reasons that they say they're taking the trip, right? This is what they, why they say they're taking the trip, mm-hmm. and maybe what others think about why they're taking the trip, is health. Right. Jefferson, his whole life, suffered from terrible migraines. Mm-hmm. And for anyone uh, familiar with the politics of 1790 uh, his migraines are extreme right now, having to deal yeah. with Hamilton and going through everything that they went through. Mm-hmm. Madison, his whole life was very sickly. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and the historians don't really know quite what the diagnosis is. Some have said epilepsy, some have said something yeah, yeah. else. He used to go into these kinds of fits. He always complained mm-hmm. of various bilious fevers. Mm-hmm. Uh, his yeah. constitution was fragile and frail. So they both said, let's get away for health. Um, the mm-hmm. idea of just taking a trip, getting away from the day-to-day stresses of their lives. Uh, there's a wonderful line in the letter that Madison writes before the trip um, where he talks about why it is that they're going uh, on this trip. Um, and, and he talks about health curiosity and well-being right being Mm -hmm. objects curiosity uh being being one of the key factors okay i'll take a breath (laughs) now let me just say we're talking to lou major the board of governors distinguished professor of american studies and history at rutgers university about his forthcoming book on jefferson madison and their travels through upstate new york and new england and right now we're talking about why they took the trip and so, yes. So the exact quote um, is health recreation. That was the word and curiosity um, okay. always being his objects. I'm never out of my way. <laughs> and I'm thinking of calling the book never out of my way. The Northern journey of Jefferson and Madison. So what they said about why they were going is they were going for their health. They were going for recreation. Jefferson was going to check out the Hessian fly. And they were basically going to take a break from the politics of the moment. The political opposition all said nonsense. They all yeah. saw in this trip yeah. an attempt by the two leading Democratic Republicans to build political support right. in a decidedly federalist area. And yeah. um, there's all kinds of letters and and and, and nasty comments. Mm-hmm. Uh, someone writes a letter to Hamilton 
telling him what's going on here with these guys. And, and when they come yeah. through Hartford, there's a meeting where they suspect that there's political motivation. Yeah. And obviously, um, Jefferson and Madison are politicians and there's going to sure. be some political agenda. But it's not the purpose of the trip, right? It's not the purpose of the trip. Did politics come up? Of course it did. Uh, mm-hmm. The hanging out with the governor of Vermont, who's going to be a longtime Jeffersonian. Yeah. Uh, they tore revolutionary battlefields. This is another subject that's oh, fascinating yeah. uh, that that uh, I really would like to know more about. I mean, this is the moment when those battles are being memorialized and the right. idea of going to Saratoga and going to Ticonderoga. I mean, this, you know, especially for these Virginians, I mean, they had heard of these battles and they knew the importance mm-hmm. of them. Uh, so they actually take time to tour these battlefields uh, and, uh, Jefferson writes yeah. in a letter to his son-in-law about that experience. So there's certainly um, a subtext, political context, mm-hmm. to them touring around. Uh, but you know, when they have dinner in Albany with Philip Schuyler, uh, mm-hmm. Hamilton's father-in-law, uh, yeah. you know, I'm sure politics came up at dinner, but what we have in Jefferson's journal is they talked about the Hessian fly. Uh, they yeah. talked about you know those kinds of issues. So... Um, New Englanders, you know, your question is, what did they make of them? I mean, the Federalists were suspicious of them and thought they were there to try and promote this kind of Clintonian Livingston uh, Burr alliance uh, and spread it further uh, into into New York and through Connecticut. Uh, I I don't think um, politics was explicitly at all their their agenda, Uh, Mm -hmm. but obviously politics came up uh, again. Yeah. No, it's really a reminder of that how broad their interests were. And maybe we live in a hyper-political age today where we think everything revolves around politics. But here, it's conceivable they did have dinner with Philip Schuyler and talked about lots of things other than his son-in-law. Uh, At this, yeah, absolutely. At the same time, um, and I love this, I love this so much. And again, this is 30 years later. Uh, Margaret Baird Smith wrote Madison to ask him about this trip that they took together. Wow. So again, the trip yeah. is not just this minor thing that was forgotten. And 30 years later, Madison tells an anecdote. And, and what's so great about mm-hmm. this is there's no other way of knowing these kinds of things. And this is one of the few anecdotes mm-hmm. I have. And he says that um, they were having dinner. He writes to her, the new constitution of the United States having just been put into question, forms of government, were the uppermost topic everywhere we went. Yeah. Uh, the question being started as to the best mode of providing the executive chief, it was among other opinions boldly advanced. This is at a dinner um, yeah. in Albany, I believe, uh, that a hereditary designation was preferable to any elective process that could be devised. And the cause of an eloquent diffusion against the agitations and animosities of a popular choice and in behalf of birth, as on the whole, affording a better chance for a suitable head of government, Mr. Jefferson, with a smile, remarked that he had heard of a university somewhere in which the professor of mathematics was hereditary. The reply received with acclamation was the coup de grace for the anti-Republican heretic. It's wow. so delightful, wow. Bob, right? Just that is, that's great. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. having this conversation and Jefferson standing up and um, yeah. and offering that. So um, yeah. 
again, and this is Madison recounting that 30 years it's, later. It's amazing. Yeah. It's amazing. And then when Jefferson's granddaughter visits the area, he, he is fascinated with the changes she perceives in this area at 30 years later. Yeah, uh, it's that that too is amazing. So um she marries Ellen Coolidge at Monticello. This is early yeah. 1826, in fact, Jefferson's last year, or before, prior, maybe 1825. Uh, and her and her husband, who was from Boston, uh, return back, and she writes to her grandfather, mm -hmm. uh, Thomas Jefferson, she was beloved to him, that the journey that they took, which was very similar to the journey that he and Madison took, and Madison writes back saying, yes, you know, that's the same trip that we took. Now, here's the amazing thing. She writes about the difference between New England and Virginia mm -hmm. and the basic difference being slavery Yeah, and how much more comfortable she feels being in New England and how much more profitable and successful and vibrant New England is because they do not have slavery. Jefferson in her response makes an allusion to that, says basically, yeah, you know, I knew you'd be happier in New England where yeah. the fatal stain has mm. been removed. That's the phrase he uses, the mm. fatal stain. But then he goes on to talk about the trip and he celebrates yeah, yeah, yeah. 30 years yeah. of a free government and happiness in America. So yeah. it's it's it, it's an important journey. It's an important journey, oh, yeah. both for what it tells us about them in the summer of 1791, in the midst of this cauldron of mm -hmm. political explosion, I mean, my goodness, you know, everything that's going on with Hamilton, with the mm -hmm. funded debt, with the National Bank, I mean, all the big issues. Jefferson gets involved in this controversy over the dedication to the rights of man. Thomas Paine's yeah, right. book has been uh, republished in America. And by accident, Jefferson forwarded to the publisher with a note saying mm -hmm. that he hopes it'll do some good against the political heresies of the day. Uh, well, that note was meant to be private and confidential. It turns out to yeah. be the dedication printed in the yeah. book, right. signed by the Secretary of State. And yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. It's just absolute, absolute chaos. So no wonder he wanted to get away. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah. And I actually I'm reminded that one of the people who blasts Jefferson is Publicola in the Boston newspapers attacking him. And Publicola is John Quincy Adams. That's and, right. And in fact, Madison is the one who tells Jefferson it's John Quincy Adams because at first they yeah. think whether or not it's Adams. And of course, this yeah. is just one of the many times that yeah. Jefferson-John Adams relationship fractures uh, yeah. because Adams sees it as a heresy on him. And then Washington gets involved, as he always is, yeah. trying to sort yeah. of keep his uh, disruptive yeah. children um, getting along. So it's... it's um, it's it's quite a moment in American yeah. politics and American history in in the story of kind of post revolutionary America and I'm I'm having a great time writing it. Uh, it my it hope is like, it will be published in early 2025. Very good. No, it sounds like it. and as you've been talking, I've wondered why no one's written this book before, but it was waiting for you. <laughs> well, yeah, that's nice of you to say. I mean, I, I sort of have an eye for these kinds of yeah moments in these things. And, and I think the answer goes back to your first question, which brings this maybe full circle in some ways. Uh, they didn't leave a lot of documentation. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's it's hard. It's hard to work with limited sources, and it requires a certain amount 
of willingness to sort of to unpack those sources and to to take them um, as far as one possibly can. Uh, but there are some letters and there are some diary entries and there's there's enough. There's enough to try and right. tell this story uh, more completely than the two or three pages at most that it gets in any of the major books about Jefferson mm-hmm. and Madison. And, and as I said, and to use it, not just to talk about Jefferson and Madison, I use it to talk about four pivotal issues in mm-hmm. post-revolution America, right? The Hessian fly, the sugar maple tree, race and slavery, uh, and Native American languages. Uh, and, and to talk about those four issues and to see them all as part and parcel of the kind of worldview of these men, I think helps to sort of reset us from just the sort of important but sort of endless focus just on political parties and just on the sort of political debates of the moment, as as, as important, of course, as those are. Great. Well, thank you so much, Lou, for joining us. We've been talking to Lou Major, who is the Board of Governors Distinguished Professor of American Studies and American and History at Rutgers University and uh, author of a lot of books, the forthcoming one in early 2025 on Jefferson and Madison's journey. And I love that line about the uh, world in a grain of sand, having just seen our one of our favorite performers doing his, uh, ending his concert with every grain of sand. It made me, uh, oh, brings that memory to me. Yeah, so, so thank you so much, Lou. This has been fun. Thanks, Bob. Uh, Thanks for having me. This is just great. And I'll want to thank our many listeners and our uh, Jonathan Lane, who is our producer, the man behind the curtain. Now, and every week, Lou, I thank the folks in different areas who are tuning in. And if you are in one of these places and you'd like to get some of our Revolution 250 swag, send Jonathan Lane an email, jlane at revolution250.org. And, you know, initially we thought we'd have, uh, you know, a few of our friends maybe listening now and then, but actually we have really a number of folks we know are tuning in regularly in different parts of the world. And so folks in Manchester, New Hampshire, San Juan Capistrano, California, Sterling Heights and Madison Heights in Michigan, Natick, Dracut and Quincy here in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. A um, Couple of places that Ma- Madison and Jefferson might have gone through, Ballston Lake in New York. I don't think they made it to Cooperstown, um, but they've, Folks are listening in Queens and the Bronx, as well as in Neptune City, New Jersey. And I want to thank all of you for joining us and folks in places between and beyond. And now we will be piped out on the road to Boston. 